Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have Mayor Sir Baradaran, one of the leading experts on closing the racial wealth gap in the country. We also have David Kamen, former special assistant to President Obama for economic policy. And we have the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam, as always. Before we get started, I'll just say that I'm reminded that it's important that we are as organized on the inside as we are on the outside. And I think about that because of the historic wins that we had on the left just a week ago. And while it's important that we press on the outside, that has to be a part of the work, that we force systems and structures to respond. It is also important that there are people who already understand equity, who already understand justice, who already understand the world that we should have and want to build that. So this is not about either or, this is about both and. Let's go. And now the news with me, Brittany Pagnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission, appointed by President Obama to the task force in 21st century policing, and now a leader in education. Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. It's the news. This is Brittany Pagnett, at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Clint Smith I I I for old school sake. <laughs> uh, and this is Deray at Deray D E R A Y on Twitter. So shout out to everyone who uh, went and voted. If you were in one of the um, about third of the country states that had elections last Tuesday, as we discussed on the on the pod. Yeah, you know, Democrats got uh, a bunch of unexpected surprises, especially in Virginia, uh, flipped uh, more than a dozen House seats in their favor. And, and, you know, it was it was I almost forgot what it felt like to not be consumed in a spiral of (laughs) despair. Uh, So so it was a a pleasant surprise to um, get some notifications saying that, you know, Northam had won. And and and, you know, I was really like most folks. Um, super excited about um, those down ballot results, and and you know we have to be careful and, and certainly not make too much of it, but uh, but it, it's heartening, and and I think that we have to give ourselves a moment to uh, to celebrate and and say that good stuff was done, um, but also obviously the additional work begins now. You know, it's it's about holding folks accountable after you elect them, and so I hope that everybody who uh, went out and voted for Democrats and got these folks elected, uh, also does the work of, of holding their feet to the fire and saying that you uh, you have an obligation to represent us and our interest and um, you, you should be held accountable to the standards that you espoused for yourself when you were running. Yeah, it's interesting, Clint, you mentioned, you know, feeling this air of despair being lifted. I felt sort of the same way. It almost felt after the past year that, like it was hard to imagine that our votes could actually like make a difference and and elect folks. I remember after you know in Georgia, I think it was Georgia six with Ossoff running, and then he didn't win, and there was so much energy about it. Um, I think now it's been clearly demonstrated that 
the enthusiasm is on the Democrat side and and on the you know let's actually hold and the Republicans accountable for everything that they've done over the past year and, and more. Um, and then I, it was sort of a split fe- feeling because on the other side you see what happened in the Virginia House of Delegates where. Democrats won, I think it was like 54% of the vote, but didn't get a majority of seats. It was like 50-50 because of gerrymandering. So, you know, we have to be vigilant. One, our votes matter. And two, the more that we can get folks elected uh, who are not rigging the game in favor of the Republicans, the better those outcomes will be. As a reminder, there is a special election coming up in Alabama. And if you don't know, um, there's basically a predator on the uh, on the ballot. So that election is in December. Uh, and then our 2018 midterm elections, there are 33 U.S. Senate seats up. Every single one of the 435 U.S. House seats are up for election. 198 state executive seats. So that's governors, state superintendents of education, um, state attorneys, et cetera. Six, over 6,000 state legislature seats. That doesn't even include all of the judges, city councils, mayors, et cetera, that will be up to vote um, uh, on Election Day 2018. So get out there. Use that momentum to keep going. And just so uh, we can go over the victories, Braxton Winston won on the city council in Charlotte, North Carolina. He uh, was a protester, is a protester. The first mayor of Framingham, Massachusetts, Yvonne Spicer, a black woman. She's the first mayor in the history of Framingham. Uh, The town just voted recently to become a city instead of uh, a town government. The first black female mayor of Charlotte, her name is uh, Mayor-elect Vi Lyles. Her father didn't graduate from high school. She spent three decades as a city administrator before running for office. The first black mayor of Statesboro is Jonathan McCollar. The first black mayor of Cairo, uh, Georgia, is Booker Gaynor. The first black mayor of Midgeville, Georgia, is Mary Parham Copeland. First black mayor of Georgetown, South Carolina, Brendan Barber. The first black mayor of Helena, Montana, Walmart Collins, and the first black mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, Melvin Carter. He was on Party of the People. The first Latinas elected to the Virginia House of Delegates, Democrats Elizabeth Guzman and Hala Alaya. The first Asian-American female to be elected to the Virginia House of Delegates is Kathy Tran. Uh, and then there were two transgender elected officials, Danica Rome and Andrea Jenkins, who both were elected. Uh, Andrea Jenkins was the first black transgender woman to be elected to public office when she won the Minneapolis City Council race. And then Danica won in Virginia. So Felipe Cunningham, who who also is transgender, who won in, who's a transgender man who won in Minneapolis as well. A lot of big wins, and it's important that we celebrate those wins. And to your point, Britt, about the momentum and the special election happening in Alabama, just to be you know, 100% clear, this election is between uh, an alleged pedophile and a man who prosecuted the Ku Klux Klan after the four little girls were killed in Birmingham, Alabama, um, a few decades ago. And so, you know, in terms of the the sort of moral standing of these two individuals, it's uh, it's pretty much no contest. But, you know, it, it is going to certainly be a test of um, the moral consistency of a lot of uh, evangelicals in Alabama and and the sort of political infrastructure of Alabama writ large. And, and it's been uh, wild, to put it euphemistically, um, to see so many people um, sort of hula hoop their way to all these different defenses of him, of Roy Moore, of a really indefensible thing to do. Well, this is also a big day because this is Britney's 
birthday. Hey. Brittany turned 33 today. Oh, I just heard baby Jay telling me happy birthday. Tell him thanks. Say happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, y'all. <laughs> hey, happy birthday, um, Brittany. Where are you, Brittany? How, how are you celebrating your birthday? I've been in Manchester in the UK for the last uh, few days for a fellowship. So um, I should probably stop my terrible accent now. Everybody's been uh, it very wasn't bad. kind. And it's pretty awful. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't terrible. A, uh, that's good. Um, B minus. But, I, you know, I've, I've, I've felt really honored to. I was just in England trying to go around with an accent and it really did not work. People were like, nope. No, no, no Brittany. <laughs> Shut Br- it down. Brittany Noel Packnett. That was, that was a pretty bad accent. Is it Barrington? <laughs> There's a guest here. Brittany Noel, <laughs> is, is that uh, you? Hi, Bear. Oh, my God. You guys- <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Brittany. This is Brittany's brother. Hey, buddy. <laughs> uh, Bear, can you please tell us some interesting fact about Brittany Noel Packnett that the world does not know yet? Oh, no. Um, I think the best. Little known fact about my sister is actually if she wasn't doing what she's currently doing, she was destined for a career in comedy. She's by far one of the funniest individuals Aww. I know. She is. Oh, man. She's pretty shady, too. She has like some good shady lines <laughs> that are actually hilarious. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> she got that from her mother. She'll throw some shade at you and you won't know it hits you till a month later. <laughs> Did Brittany have any nicknames growing up? Oh, Yeah. What what level of embarrassment am I allowed to give my sister out there? You got to turn it up we to just, 100. All yeah, the way we just up. want the truth. Okay, we'll, we'll go zero to 100 real quick. Um, real quick. <laughs> Brittany, Brittany, let's see. So we'll, we'll start with everybody, the one everybody knows, which is BB, because I was, when I was born, I thought Brittany was too long and I couldn't say it. So BB came from that. Uh, let's see, though. But it, it got more interesting from there. We had Big Head. Dang. We had Dune Buggy. <laughs> uh, Wait, Dune Buggy? It's not a good birthday without a surprise, Brittany. Well, this was a really wonderful surprise. Nope, time to stop talking. Love you. I love you. Oh, Bye. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bear, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, Brittany, we love you. And you're an incredible friend and partner on everything. I love y'all too. Thanks, Bear. No problem. Love you. Happy birthday again. I love that he thought that everybody just knew your name was BB. Like, we didn't call you BB, but now I got you, BB. Oh, God. Oh, gosh. That was a close held family nickname. And now I'm going to have people walking up to me on the street like, BB, <laughs> I just heard you on Pod Save the People. <laughs> I love it. We got I, 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 and BB. Oh, man. That was really sweet, you all. Thank you for including my brother. He's He's an incredible person and minister and um he's just a real shining light in my life so it was really it was such a wonderful surprise to hear his voice so thank you all for that okay the news my piece of news actually two articles two studies that have come out uh, one from patrick sharkey who previously has done some great work around concentrated poverty and the effects of concentrated poverty uh, by race and now has come out with a study which looks at the impact that nonprofit organizations uh, have had on the crime rate. And so he looks, at, I think it's a 230 or 270 cities uh, for the past few decades and looks at the number of nonprofit organizations that are doing uh, community-based work, particularly focused on uh, safety and uh, economic and youth development, and finds that they had a dramatic impact on the 
reduction of the crime rate that we saw over the past several decades. Uh, in particular, every 10 additional community-based organizations was associated uh, with a 6% reduction in violent crime and a 9% reduction in the murder rate. And so this is really, really important when you put it in context of some of the other strategies that have been used uh, during that period to address crime, mainly policing and incarceration. So a study from the Brennan Center came out that, sh- that looked at the declining crime rates over the past several decades uh, and the impact, if any, that policing and incarceration and a variety of other factors had on it. What they found was that uh, mass incarceration had no impact on the violent crime rate. Uh, and policing, adding more police officers to the force, had between 0 and 5% uh, impact on uh, the violent crime rate. And so, again, 0 to 5%. So it might not have had an impact. It might have had a very small impact. Um, but when you look at those two strategies, they're about $180 billion a year. Uh, the Prison Policy Institute came out with a study that looked at how much money the system of mass incarceration and policing costs. It's about $180 billion a year that are being spent on that strategy, which again has no impact compared to a strategy of investing in community organizations uh, and community-based work, uh, which actually has a, a greater impact and gets much less investment than those other strategies. So I bring that first study into the conversation. And then the second study that came out looked at Medicaid and found that the expansion of Medicaid uh, particularly the substance abuse uh, treatment that was associated with that uh, also had an impact in reducing crime rates. So it, it reduced rates of robbery, aggravated assault, and larceny theft uh, in communities with a cost-benefit uh, ratio of between 1.8 and 3.2. Uh, so what both of these sh- studies do is they add to a growing body of evidence that shows uh, quite clearly that investing in community-based approaches, approaches that are giving people uh, access to healthcare and other resources that they need, uh, are much more effective than more punitive approaches of policing and incarceration and denying people benefits uh, at addressing the issue of crime. So, you know what I really love about this, um, and I appreciate you bringing this piece of good news to the pod, Sam, not just because it's another place for us to find hope and momentum, but because it proves some prevailing myths and rhetoric absolutely incorrect. So, as folks who have become known for protesting police violence, the refrain is often that we don't care about community violence, right? That, you know, and the the line is often thrown out there, well, what about how many people are killed in Baltimore? What about how many people are killed in Chicago? Um, And here's what this tells me. This tells me that not only is that false, because folks every day in our communities, as we have always known, are fighting the good fight and putting everything that they can into making their neighborhood safe and whole and healthy. Um, But they're actually doing a better job at it than well-funded police departments. Uh, In Chicago, the city council just decided to approve uh, a 90-plus million-dollar new police academy, and many people, including Chance the Rapper, but also lots of on-the-ground activists, had been doing a lot of work to oppose this while schools are shutting down and while community organizations like the ones that you're talking about, Sam, are making a real difference in the community. Uh, and so if we actually made the kind of investments in the people who are getting results and in the people living in our communities to do this work, instead of folks who continue to show themselves to not be 
responsible and not be held accountable when they violate our democracy and constitutional rights, I believe we'd see a lot of great progress. So this really turns a lot of the prevailing ideologies about how to do this work on its head. And I'm really hoping that um, that everyone from private philanthropists to cities with public funding will think about this study and will use it to inform their future actions. So this paper is definitely really important and confirms a lot, as you said, Brittany, uh, of what we have known uh, to be happening in so many of our communities across the country for a very long time. Um, and that, you know, recreational basketball leagues and that um, urban gardens and that, uh, you know, providing dance classes and, and community centers. Like we, like we know that these are not simply uh, recreational activities, but th- these are in fact activities that are uh, tied to a reduction in crime and that these are activities that folks in communities are purposefully working on with the intention of keeping so many of the young people in those communities uh, up to things that don't give them the opportunity to fall into the trap or lead them on a trajectory to do um something harmful with their time. And it also reminds me of Elizabeth Hinton's book um, that I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. And and a lot of what she talks about is how uh, so many of these communities, when crime was rising, or so, rather so many of the police departments and governments, when crime was rising, they invested kind of singularly in uh, expanding the police state, expanding the surveillance state. And what she contends is that it is more important to be investing in people in communities who have organizations and who have autonomy over the way that their organizations operate. Because, you know, as we often say, it is one thing for for other folks to have an idea of what uh, a community needs or or what they, you know, believe or what their, their you know, uh, their scales and their models have, have told them about uh, what's most important in the community. But, but no one knows a community like the folks who are there and who have been there for generations. No one is invested in the community like they are. And like you said, Brittany, you know, it is important that we don't discount that. And it's important that, uh, that folks are, that we recognize that folks are both protesting against violence at the hands of the state and also uh, doing the important and, and often overlooked work every single day of uh, pushing back against community violence in the face of like decades of history and systems and structures that makes that work incredibly difficult. I think about two things. One is that when systems fail people, uh, people in communities always step up and that in stepping up there, uh, there's an impact. And this is a great example of like systems and structures in, in all of the cities that they measured in some ways have failed uh, people, marginalized communities, poor people, black people. And what you see is these community-based organizations stepping up and providing that infrastructure to make sure that people have the resources they need, have the support they need, have the learning and love that they need. And and finally, there are studies that prove that and, and show that that's worthy. We always know it in communities, but it's important that it's in the literature. The second thing I think about is how uh, sometimes the corrective action that people think about is something that'll have immediate results, even if the results like don't actually make sense. So like, I think a lot of people want there to be more police in communities just because they, like, get it. It's like, more police, that must be less crime, da 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 And it's like, even if it has no impact, that's like, people People are just okay with that. When you're, like, investing literacy in a city, that feels so far-fetched and so, like, abstract to people that they don't, like, I think it's hard, people just don't think about those things in that way. And this is a great reminder that even if we can't measure it in the same way, 
like we can actually think about the impact that it has and and we can talk about the benefit of that and it is interesting that like the war the you know mass incarceration didn't really change anything but you see things like medicaid and it makes sense it's like healthier people like people with more resources and more options like are less likely to commit crimes like that's not like a wild theory but it's it's important that it's in the literature now so a big study from the Vera Institute was just released this past week, which evaluated the New York Immigrant Family Unit Project, which pioneered universal representation for detained uh, impoverished immigrants in deportation proceedings um, and showed a successful outcome rate of 48%, which is astonishing because it's up from just a 4% success rate for cases that did not have attorneys in that same court. And so this is, it's difficult to overstate how big of a finding this is that with guaranteed legal representation, up to 12 times as many immigrants have been able to win their cases, either able to get relief from deportation or uh, at least able to persuade ICE to drop attempts to deport them this time. Um, and Dara Lynn at Vox has been doing some really incredible reporting on this for, for weeks and re- honestly for years. And so for context, there's uh, no right to counsel in an immigration court, which is part of the executive branch rather than the judiciary. Uh, And sometimes a person might get lucky and and come across a pro bono legal aid clinic or attorney who can help them when they're in the courthouse, but that's unlikely. And the problem is that representation for detainees is is often uh, far beyond what they're able to afford. And additionally, imagine not being able to understand the language of the court proceedings happening around you, which is the case for many of the immigrants who come through these courts. And and if you don't know the language, you have no way of knowing if you're eligible for so many of the protections that the, that the these courts offer, such as the Conventions Against Torture, the Violence Against Women Act, and, and special immigrant juvenile status that is often afforded to um, folks who are seeking asylum or who, who are seeking uh, opportunities to have the courts or and have the United States allow them to stay. But if you don't have an attorney, it really limits your ability to even know where to start and know if you qualify for any of those. And as you can imagine, our friend uh, Jeff Beauregard Sessions is, is super frustrated with this um, and does not agree. And in a speech recently, uh, he said that these were dirty, quote, dirty immigration lawyers uh, who were dragging out cases and warned that the federal government would be taking action soon. So this is really important. And the fact that Immigrants who are given access to an attorney have 12 times a better chance at winning their cases than before is pretty remarkable. Um, and and this is really going to be an incredible opportunity and test to see uh, to what extent this may serve as a, as a precedent for other cities across the country. And the cities in the network that have um, taken this upon themselves with the help of Vera are Atlanta, Georgia, Austin, Texas, Baltimore, Maryland, Chicago, Columbus, Ohio, uh, Dane County, Wisconsin, Oakland, California, Prince George's County, Maryland, Sacramento, California, San Antonio, Texas, and Santa Ana, California. And so we'll certainly be keeping an eye on this. I'm sure that Vera will be uh, continuing to do really rigorous uh, research work on this as as they have done. Shout out to the folks at Vera. Um, But this is, again, you know, in a week of uh, relative good news, um, this is more good news. And, and, Amid the the difficulties of the uh, federal government's sort of doubling down on uh, really draconian immigration policy, uh, this represents a really huge opportunity to to make sure that folks are being protected and that they're getting the the due process that they deserve. 
So this study was really powerful in reading through it because it found that the rate at which uh, folks were successful in defending immigrants uh, who are at risk of deportation went from 4% all the way up to 48% was the estimate uh, when uh, legal defense was provided. And so, you know, this program is so powerful, potentially, you know, defending half of success, being successful in half of all cases. And I think about efforts at the state level uh, and by some cities, you know, just most recently in California, they passed uh, a state budget that included $45 million for immigrant legal defense. And I think, you know, ultimately that is, it's proving to be a very effective strategy and something that cities and states should invest more in uh, to make sure that everybody, especially folks uh, at risk of being deported, have access to legal counsel. Brittany? This is definitely some good news, but uh, Clint, there are a couple of things that you said and that the article talks about um, that jump out at me. One, uh, for Beauregard to call anybody dirty is the most astronomical level of disgusting irony I've ever heard. Uh, So I just wanted to get that out of the way because let's not forget his track record. Um, But but speaking of him and this administration, one of the things um, that they point out in this report is that uh, a more just and equitable immigration court might not necessarily mean a more efficient one. And this administration has put a very high level of import on things being efficient. So this is a teachable moment for folks. If when you get a chance, go Google um, white middle-class dominant culture, where you will find the the first or second, um, the first or second response should link you to a PDF document that is multiple pages that essentially outlines what white middle-class dominant culture is. And what you have to remember is that the issue is not in and of these practices themselves. The issue is that these uh, these ways of being are dominant. They do not allow for other cultural practices or ways of being to be viewed as successful or right or righteous. So one of the tenets of white middle-class dominant culture is efficiency and efficiency above all else. And so this is, I think this finding presents another opportunity for us to put the will behind the politicians if they won't develop it themselves to choose people over efficiency. That is what equity and liberation looks like to choose people over efficiency, to choose justice over what's expedient, to choose what's right over what's fast. I don't have anything to add about this specific issue. I think you're right. It, it, the the study's so clear about the right to counsel, like benefits people immensely. Um, it makes me think about though the lack of public defenders across the country and what happens when either there isn't really a public defender's office or when the public defender's office is severely underfunded. So you think about places like New Orleans, where up until recently in New Orleans, uh, Studies so show that public defenders were assigned who were assigned to misdemeanor courts each had upward to nineteen thousand cases a year. And you're like, well, I don't even is that really the right to counsel? Like what does that actually look like when you haven't funded an office in a way to actually give people any sense of representation? And I do think that this is an underexplored area. I think that in the in with regard to immigration, it's underexplored and and with regard to criminal defense uh in in like district court and and local courts, it's something that like we take for granted because we've seen on TV that everybody has a lawyer. And in reality, like people actually don't have, we've not funded an infrastructure to guarantee people the right to counsel at scale. 
Yeah, and to that point, Duray, in some places you actually have to pay for a public defender. So like they'll have a public defender application fee and people will have to pay sometimes $50, sometimes $100 in order to actually get the public defender that they you know, should be provided under the Constitution. See, that's well. So I wish I could continue the uh, good news train here, but unfortunately I have some not so good news specifically around this issue of uh, immigrations and refugees. So last Wednesday, uh, the Trump administration abruptly canceled uh, what's called the Central American Minors Program. That's minors as in children. Uh, It's called CAM for short. Essentially, this program was set up for young people in in several Central American countries who are fleeing violence and have family that have legal status uh, in the U.S. to apply for asylum. Um, If those young people do not meet the standards of asylum, they can still uh, receive what they call a temporary humanitarian parole, which allows you to stay in the country for two years. So this was created by the Obama administration in 2014 um, as at least a temporary solution um, to several refugee crises in countries uh, that neighbor us just to the south. And in just the last three years, over 3,000 young people have come into this country either as Um, asylum seekers or as people who received, again, that temporary humanitarian parole. That's their words, not mine. Um, So the Trump administration had already slowed the program, um, but when they stopped it, there were 2,700 young people that were qualified for the parole program alone um, who were just waiting on their, their travel information who were all abruptly told that their acceptance had been revoked. Um, and, And what we have to realize about this is not only is it cruel, applying for the program in the first place already puts you in grave danger. So if you are already living in um, dangerous or violent circumstances, you are often trying to stay in hiding and not draw attention to yourself. But the requirements of this program actually mean that you have to go and interview in person during um, daylight hours, right? During regular office hours, thereby drawing attention to yourself and taking a risk in the first place to even be able to seek this asylum in the United States. This once again proves that the policies of this administration, especially when it comes to immigration and receiving people um, across our borders, has nothing to do with the rhetoric that has been sold to the the supporters of this administration. It has nothing to do with economics. It has nothing to do with crime and all of these other coded labels that get put on it. This is very simply about nationalism and hatred, period. When I think about the program, You know, it was ended just days after the administration also ended the temporary protected status for Nicaraguans in the U.S., which is another immigration program that gave special immigration status to people from a foreign country where where the U.S. had determined that the conditions in the home country prevented them from returning safely or the country was unable to, to handle their return adequately. What I also think is sort of disgusting about this and and so wild is that the critics of the Central American Miners Program, the the program that Brittany referenced, one of their arguments for why the program should end was that they said the program didn't work because many of the applicants did not legally meet the definition of a refugee because they were fleeing violent conflict, but not persecution. And you're like, okay, like what? Like the Obama administration pushed back against that. They they thought that was a ridiculous uh, assertion and, and they were like, we should have a program that that allows people to seek asylum in the country. And for 
the right to say, well, you know what? They were running from violence, but it's not the persecution that we think is actually persecution is so insulting. This is also an example of how yeah, this administration is dismantling things that are not making the national news every day, but are having a real direct consequence on people's lives. And the media has to figure out a way to talk about these things that are seemingly small pieces of news, but they're not small at all to the people they impact. Duray, your comment about how they define persecution was fascinating and reminds me of the ways in which white supremacy uh, continues to operate in guiding what the decisions are of our of our government and particularly this administration in you know you could see that in the way that they define persecution in a narrowly tailored way that you know will alienate or exclude uh, large groups of people predominantly people of color who are fleeing violence and persecution like who wouldn't call that persecution um so you know ultimately i'm i'm interested in seeing do they narrow like how do they define persecution uh, and is there a way to actually uh, update that? Did they change that definition? You know, or is it just arguing about how that's to be interpreted? Yeah, no, you're right. The power to define is a, is a huge power. And it is wild that you will contend that like they are fleeing deep violence, but it's just not persecution. And therefore they shouldn't have access to the country. And like you said, Brittany, this is nationalism at, at like at its zenith, right? That like, there's no, this is as far as you can go with it. This is not a theoretical decision. This is one that has real life consequences. My news is a recent study that came out from Winthrop University. It's a study of residents in 11 southern states. The states are Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. And there were a couple of findings that I thought were fascinating. 60% of Black people and just 19% of white people strongly think that the legacy of slavery and discrimination make it hard for Black people to work their way up. 46% of white people in these states say that white people are, quote, currently under attack. And when the statement racial minorities are currently under attack in this country, about 80% of black people said that they agreed. And about 50% of white people said they agreed, which is interesting because white people overwhelmingly felt like they were under attack. So I, I brought this here because it is fascinating that it's like a debate topic, whether or not like slavery or enslavement had like still has a direct impact or whether like racism still has is real and has an impact on real people's lives. Like, I don't know what, what allows that to still be something that like is up for interpretation in this moment. So I'm fascinated by that, especially uh, when we talk about some of the Southern attitudes and we think about even Roy Moore, how, and Sam, I know you tweeted this, so maybe you'll talk about this, but how that latest study shows that like evangelicals are more likely to support him now that it came out that he sexually abused a 14-year-old. And I just don't know where that comes from. I, it is fascinating that the studies are getting more granular and more precise with the language they use. But I worry about what happens that in 2017, like this stuff is even up for debate. DeRay, when you, when you talk about it being fascinating that, that these things are true or even up for debate, it is because in every single society, uh, along every single identity line, the powerful will invent the narrative they need to preserve their power. So if you can get away from having to feel guilty about slavery because you never owned anyone, or um, if you can continue to perpetuate um, the idea that someone who is a Christian, that that is the most important and defining characteristic that will make them a good legislator, irrespective of the fact that they are most likely a predator. Um, Like, 
you you invent the story that you need to preserve the power that you want to have. Yeah, Brittany, this reminds me, you know, when I was in 10th grade, I remember uh, my AP U.S. history teacher trying to tell the class that the Civil War was not about slavery and was about, uh, I think she said, other economic concerns. Uh, who knows what that is? Um, <laughs> That's a wild. Like some some shadow economy that wasn't clearly happening in the United States. So, yeah, what's fascinating to me is that these narratives are so powerful and enduring uh, and widespread. You know, when you look at the this polling that you shared, DeRay, you know, 46% of white people thought white people were under attack and only 50% of white people thought that people of color were under attack. So it was pretty much the same proportion. And I think a, a big piece of this is that at every level, this is treated as sort of controversial and up for debate. I wonder what are those things that can really sort of overcome or uh, transcend uh, that noise to convince people of the reality? Like, what are the most effective ways of doing that? Um, and how do we do that, right? So, I, you know, I think about studies that show that the places that had uh, more uh, enslaved people uh, in 1860 uh, predicted Trump support in 2016, right? And it's like, why is that? Right. Like this is so direct, like the legacy of uh, enslavement and institutionalized oppression uh, impacts everything. It structures everything that we see today. And there has to be a way, uh, a process by which people can learn to identify that and associate that with uh, its roots and, and its legacy. Um, and I, it's not happening in the schools by and large. I mean, some schools are doing it, but overall, that's not the curriculum that's taught. Uh, it's not happening by our elected officials, for sure. It's not happening in the media where it's sort of treated as controversial and abstract. Um, and I wonder sort of where that place will be uh, that people actually can learn. So, yeah, it feels like we go through this every few years and, and uh, in the last few years, increasingly so. Um, I'm reminded of, of a great book by David Blight, who's a historian at Yale I've mentioned before. Uh, he has a great book called Race and Reunion, uh, The Civil War in American Memory. And in it, he he talks about how in 1860, the four million slaves in this country were worth more than all of the factories, railroads, and banks combined. And so, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I think it's really important for folks to understand that, to your point, Sam, about your teacher in high school, that there is no disentangling the economics of the United States in the 18th and 19th century from the reality of enslavement. Uh, and so there's that. And then secondly, I don't know if I've given this timeline before, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but, but like the first slaves came to this country in 1619. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863. Civil War ended in 1865. Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act were 1964, 1965. So it has only been 50 years in which Black people in this country have even had a semblance of legal and legislative freedom. For 350 years prior to that, it was fundamentally legal for Black folks to be disenfranchised, dehumanized, delegitimized in the eyes of the state. Not in an interpersonal, somebody being mean and using the N-word sort of way, but like you are a state-sanctioned second-class citizen. So if you kick somebody for 350 years and then you stop kicking them for a seventh of the amount of time that you kicked them, it would be morally and intellectually disingenuous to look at that person and say, why aren't you doing as well as me? Why don't you live in the same neighborhoods as me? Why don't you have the same job as me? Why don't isn't you, why is your health uh, poorer than mine? But this is what we do in this country all the time. We have this like deeply ahistorical conception of how we arrived at this moment. And the thing about 
racial inequality in this country is that it's actually not difficult to understand if you study the history that has led us to this moment. It does it it is uh, deeply unsettling and it is deeply troubling and um, will certainly make you uh, will push back against the the myopic notion of American exceptionalism. But like I don't think that I put it in that timeline because I really don't think people consider the the full scope of oppression that black folks have experienced in the context of slavery and the the disintegration of reconstruction and Jim Crow and um and you know there's one could make obviously a, a really compelling argument that there are there continue to be and there are uh, a myriad of of more insidious manifestations of of that oppression but but even if we were going to pretend that inequality ended in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act the idea that that would the 350 years prior would not impact the way that our country looks today is it, it's I don't even know what to say about it it's it's laughable uh, but here we are Clinton why do you think and Brent everybody why do you think these ideas still show up in the polls do you think that people are like that white people are are like just lying that they're like choosing to believe a narrative they know to be untrue do you think Sam that it's like People aren't being taught the truth. I just, I find it hard in 2017 where like the access to information is at in, like an unprecedented high that like almost 50% of white people in those 11 states think that they're being persecuted or like, like that's so wild to me. If you look at where they're getting inf- their information, I think that's the message predominantly that they're receiving, right? If you, you know, what TV are they watching? Well, probably like Fox News uh, and every, all day, every day, Fox News is about you know, is trying to create this narrative that white people, you know, white, uh, you know, heterosexual Christian men in particular, but people in general are being persecuted by this, that, and the other thing. Um, that's the narrative, right? That's being pushed. It's the narrative being pushed by the president. It's the narrative being pushed uh, in many different places, right? In in our cultural sort of in the cultural channels whereby they get their information, even on social media with the echo chambers. And so I think. You know, the question is, how do you disrupt that? Um, you know, what would get the message through to people who have never been exposed to that, uh, that, you know, something's different? And how and how would they even interpret that in a way that uh, changed their opinion? You know, you think about Roy Moore and so many evangelicals who sort of, uh, particularly white evangelicals that have taken this moral high ground about behave all kinds of things that they think are, uh, you know, sinful or whatever, but pedophilia suddenly when it comes from when it goes against their guy right Roy Moore suddenly it's fake news and they don't even believe it and they want to vote for him even more right and so so I don't know how you break through that that's a great question for a sort of psychologist social psychologist I also just wonder how much of this is about us an even subconscious desire to abdicate yourself of responsibility, right? That in this particular context, holding on to or rather creating a victim status um, in this particular context allows you to escape any sense of responsibility or ownership for any of the problems in the world. And that's what you need to hold on to when you benefit from the way that the world is currently structured. And I think it's, you know, it, it's just this idea of people's place in this country being questioned, right? If, if, if the pretense is that the reason that you have what you have is predicated on the fact that it was taken away or never given to 
a range of other demographics of demographics of people and that the reason you are able to maintain a certain type of social and economic status in this country is because others took so much away from groups of people over throughout the course of history then it then it becomes if somebody is, is suggesting to you that what you have or who you are is not uh sort of inherently deserved i think it brings up real uncomfortable questions of of identity uh of people's sense of self and who they have told themselves who they are throughout their lives and and i, I want to be clear that like i think that you know if you want to generalize it i think there are two groups i think that there is a group of people who no matter what empirical evidence or historical uh data you you present them with they will believe what they're going to believe and there's there's nothing that will remove them from um believing a set of erroneous ideas regardless of how hard we we seek to like combat them and then i also think that there is a group of people in this country who just don't know and and again we've talked about this before but like i'm it is not to say that moving from naivete to knowledge means that it will ch- necessarily change your action but i also think that there are so many people in this country who don't know so much of this country's history and in and, and education is not at all going to singularly fix or alleviate um the the very mat- real and different uh material realities in this country but uh but i don't think that we can overstate the extent to which so many folks in this country really are presented their entire lives with such a narrow conception of of what american history is and and who's benefited from it that's the news don't go anywhere more politics the people's coming In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Marissa Broderian, one of the leading scholars in closing the racial wealth gap, and also the author of a new book, The Color of Money, Black Banking and the Racial Wealth Gap. So, Professor Marissa Baradaran, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I have been looking forward to this conversation on the podcast because it's one of the topics that is arguably the most important in terms of scaled solutions, but it just doesn't enter into the public conversation much. And that's how do we close the racial wealth gap and what that looks like at scale. Can you talk about how you stumbled across or how you how this became the issue that would take your life's work? Yeah, so I am a banking law scholar, um, and I spent you know years working as a banking law person on Wall Street, and I've written books about banking, and this is my field, and I stumbled across sort of black banks and, you know, looked into their history and realized that these institutions are able to say more about the racial wealth gap than any other institution. And so tracking their history really sort of, you know, outlines how the racial wealth gap was created and how efforts to fight it, what those efforts to fight the racial wealth gap, which black banks have been engaged in since the Civil War, tell us about how how sticky the racial wealth gap is. And I think you're absolutely right. This racial wealth gap underlies everything. It's not this like burning fire, like, you know, police brutality and all of this stuff. And so it doesn't sort of command the attention that these other actions do, but I think it bleeds into everything and it really causes so much underlying injustice. So many of the other injustices that we do talk about that really get public attention, I think, stem from this this tragedy of the fact that the the racial wealth gap is so large, it has not closed, and it's actually growing. I mean, we just have not improved on this since the Civil War. Now, I read the, the, the study, The Race to Zero, that talks about that in 2053, I believe, that the racial uh, the median income for black people will be $0 in this country. And, and the wealth statistics are even worse. So we talk about income, but w- when we're dealing with wealth, I mean, a third of black families have zero to negative wealth. Right now? Yes. Yes. A third of black families have zero to negative wealth. And um, the the averages are dramatic as well. So average, you know, with a college degree, white households have something like 360,000 on average. Black families have something like 30,000. So across every income level and every education level, whites have something like 20 times more wealth than black. So it's not just there's more concentrated poverty. You know, it, it works out across every income and education level. Now, how would you describe to people the difference between income and wealth? Uh, you know, I think what most people think about this income is like what they what their gut goes to. Yeah. So income is um, it's it's a reliable indicator when you're talking about sort of upward mobility. Um, but wealth is much more central when we're talking about um, a community's access to resources. So our um, U.S. tax code is sort of a local tax code. So your schools, your local resources are funded through property taxes. So this is where wealth has this sneaky ability to limit resources across the board for communities. So low wealth communities 
you have just low capital and low property ownership. And so this means that your schools are crappier, right? This means that your resources, you just don't have the, the social capital, the industry in your neighborhoods, and wealth ends up becoming a predictor for income. So in other words, it's not as though high income or low income leads to low wealth. It's that low wealth leads to low income. So in other words, if you have low wealth to begin with, and this tracks back to housing usually, right? So, you know, the way the middle class, the way we measure middle class wealth is through housing. And so blacks have been, you know, deprived of these housing um, initiatives by the federal government. We can talk about that later. But what this means when you have low wealth is that you have you know, worse schools, you have lower sort of social infrastructure, you have lower just infrastructure and, and the ladders out of those communities are restricted. And so you've got these low wealth communities and that leads to lower education opportunities, lower college attendance. And um, when you have, you, when you don't own your home, you're less likely to be able to get a student loan to go to a good college. You're more likely to be able to be, you know, uh, be pr- pr- sort of, um, succumb to, you know, predatory lending and debt, um, uh, sort of all of the, you know, black communities are taken to court more for their, you know, um, debts than white communities. It just kind of, you know, becomes this cycle of, um, debt, um, and lack of opportunity. And this, this is, this is directly related to wealth and not income. Now, when I talked to some people about this and I just actually got an email from a young person, uh, today who his argument was sort of like, DeRay, I, I hear you talk about this stuff and it, it feels divisive that I mean, he's a white white young man and he's like, you know, I get that there was wrongdoing, but when you try and say that like the system is against people, you know, we've come so far since slavery and people just need to work hard. That was sort of like his gist. What do you say to people who who are like, well, everything's equal now. And because things are equal now, like we should move on. Like, what's your response to that as a historian and somebody who studied these issues so deeply? The, the, the past is very much with us. I mean, this is the, the, we don't even have to go back to slavery. I mean, the economic um, disparities, black and white, you know, there was obviously slavery and then there was, you know, a century of um, Jim Crow laws, but then there was a New Deal era in actions, which I've talked about and outlined in my book where, you know, everyone's grandfather, when they came back from World War II, if they were white, they got this FHA mortgage. They got a GI bill that allowed them to go to school and that affects what your opportunities are if you're white today, right? Not, not, we're not going back to slavery today. If your grandfather or your, you know, um, father had, you know, came from a family that owned a home, you just started off with much more access to resources, right? So you, if you, you know, get a hiccup, you can move back to your um, parents' house. You can get a loan derived from that house. If you're black, you did not get those mortgages. The FHA decided to not give mortgages to black communities. I mean, this was explicit. The one marker for what communities were deemed risk, too risky to give mortgages to was the racial makeup of that community. So if you were black and you lived in a black neighborhood, you could not get a mortgage. And then you couldn't move into another neighborhood because the white communities um, restricted your ability to purchase because through these racial covenants. And so... Black people got stuck in these communities, these low wealth, low um, property, low opportunity communities, and whites were able to go to the suburbs and these high opportunity communities. And that is very much with us today. We are still 
in those areas of segregation. So you still, you know, looking at the red lines of the FHA created in 1934, the racial makeup has not changed. And so this is not about, oh, like we're talking about slavery. Why are we talking about that now? We're on equal footing. We just have, we are not on equal footing. And the racial wealth gap, I think, is where past injustices really have present consequences. And this is why I choose to focus on the racial wealth gap and not talk about sort of just, you know, discrimination, because I think discrimination is, obviously there is plenty of discrimination, but the racial wealth gap is really where history um, has this sneaky and real tragic event, uh, uh, effect on communities that is really easy to look away from. But I think this is where we need to look very, very closely, looking at the economic factors, which is what I've done in the book, looking at the institutions that were created. So we're not talking about, you know, implicit bias. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm looking at institutions and I'm looking at how capital, once created through white wealth building institutions like the banks and like the home ownership programs was able to perpetuate capital in white communities and what, what that deprivation of capital and property ownership meant for black communities. That is very much something that self-perpetuates without any need for added racism. So this is, you know, to your uh, white friend and others who might challenge this idea, it's that, look, I mean, these institutions have, way longer lasting effects than what you would assume. And, and these, um, you know, the, 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 you know, black, white education gap, the black, white crime gap, the black, white, all of those gaps stem from very um, real historic policy decisions made by the federal government. I've heard you before talk about the organizing that happened around economic injustice in the past in, in that being one of your research areas. Can you talk about that a little bit? And how that's different than today, you would argue? I think we, um, I think during the 1960s, so between, you know, uh, the, t- toward the tail end of the civil rights era, I mean, from the beginning, right, 1963, you know, Martin Luther King launches, the, uh, you know, before 1963, they launched the Montgomery bus boycotts. And from the beginning, I mean, before King um, starts the Montgomery bus boycotts, his, you know, 10 point or 15 point agenda for the movement has very much to do with economic policy. You know, his speech, his I have a dream speech, you know, we, we kind of cherry pick the quotes that we want. One of it, one of which that, you know, is, is a favorite among, you know, uh, policymakers is, you know, judge, judge me by the content of my character, not the color of my skin being like this, oh, we're in this colorblind world. But Martin Luther King's message was very much about economic injustice. I mean, even in that, I have a dream speech. He says, I've, we've come here to, you know, our check is cashed insufficient funds. You know, he's talking about it in terms of economic power and past injustice needing to be remedied. And so Martin Luther King, you know, as he, um, you know, after the civil rights laws are passed, he starts to launch this poor people's movement and, and, you know, is obviously assassinated um, before he can get it off the ground. But during this 1965 to 1969 era, black activists are very much focused on economic reforms, you know, and there's disparities on how we want that to happen. So is it integration? Is it housing integration? Is it reparations? And these things were discussed in an open way, right? This idea was that we have been deprived these communities. The, the, the poverty is concentrated and it's because of these federal policies and these Jim Crow laws. So we need not just to eradicate these laws, which is what the Civil Rights Act did, 
everyone recognized this is incomplete until we remedy um, the problems of the past. And, and that kind of goes away. And I talk about how Nixon was able to sort of subvert this whole movement and talk about black capitalism in a really sort of um, sneaky, sort of tricky dig way that he has of, of sort of, you know, flipping the table. And, and since that era, you know, post Nixon, we've got this sort of neoliberal free market um, talk, and now we just don't talk about the past injustices anymore. And we just assume that we're in this colorblind world and that the past injustices were wiped away as soon as the civil rights era laws were passed. But every principle of the civil rights um, uh, era, including Nixon himself, who was not, you know, pro civil rights, um, understood that something had to be done to address poverty um, because that that poverty was created through federal policy. And I think we forgot that. Um, and we tend to have this amnesia when it comes to um, the injustices borne by the black community. Um, so I, I really don't think you have to, you know, go back very far um, to see this vibrant conversation that we just don't have anymore. And what are the solutions? Is it financial literacy courses in high schools? Is it a do, no. is, <laughs> is it black banks? Like, what is what is it? Talk about financial literacy. You know, I said that somewhere and I got an email from somebody that right. was like, you know, DeRay, we need financial literacy education. And I was like, I talked to an expert who told me something different. So, so, so can you talk about that? idea of financial education comes up. And look, I'm not saying that we don't need financial education. Everyone needs financial education. But but when you, when you hear financial education being directed at poor communities, there's this underlying assumption that people are poor because they make bad decisions or because they're not educated enough. They don't know um, enough about money. And that's why they're poor. And I just want to nip that in the bud and just be like, that is every bit of research that has ever been done on the, the, the wealth gap and on financial education shows that, in fact, poor people know much more about money management than do the wealthy. Why? Because they need that information more. Um, you know, you, there, there's been these studies where you get people outside of a grocery store. So you're coming out with your cart. You ask a middle-class person, how much did you spend in total? What was each I- the price of each item in the cart? And they, they have no idea. They can't remember. Whereas a poor person knows exactly what they spend. So all of these other studies show that when you're dealing in scarcity, right, when you have less of a financial buffer, you're much more attuned to what things cost, to using your money. When people go to these payday lenders, it's not that they don't know the cost. It's not that education can help them here. It's that they have no other choice. I have no family that has wealth. My granddaddy doesn't have a home that I can borrow from. No one in my close circle of friends and family has 500 extra dollars. My car broke down or my child is sick. I need this money, so I go to a payday lender. Financial education isn't really going to help me in this scenario. I need options. I need other alternatives besides these payday loans. And so we financial literacy has become this sort of, you know, this thing that we throw at poor communities that that is not proven to be the gap there. The gap is that they don't have enough money. It's not the lack of education. And so this, you know, and, and I think what it does, the harm I see in, in touting this is that um, people, it, it's, a, it's a blame shifting thing, right? It's instead of saying, look, what are the global system-wide injustices that have created this gap? And then it, it, instead of focusing on those things, it puts the burden on the individual decision maker and says, if you only could decide better, if you could only do things differently, right? This is this, um, the, the, then you wouldn't be so poor. I mean, I was at Treasury, um, 
a treasury conference on the racial wealth. It was on the Friedman Savings Bank, which is a bank I talk about in the book. But um, the black enterprise uh, CEO was asking the treasury secretary, this is an Obama's treasury secretary, Jack Lew, and he says, you know, what do we do about this racial wealth gap? And the Treasury Secretary, you know, is like, oh, this is this huge wealth gap, and we're very concerned about it. And he says, well, let me tell you about, you know, when I was first starting out, and, you know, I didn't have very much money. Mind you, he is a, you know, Ivy League educated, you know, very um, prominent uh, Treasury Secretary. And he says, you know, we, well, what I did is I just saved my money, and maybe you don't buy lattes, and that's how you, you know, get your house. And and that is just, I mean, it's completely the wrong way to look at this wealth gap. I mean, he just has no, there's not, you know, like, and and I, you know, said at the time, like, tell me how many lattes you'd have to get <laughs> to close this racial wealth right, gap. Right? Right. I mean, like, give me a number here or like avocado toast. How many avocado toasts should I not buy to make up for that FHA loan that my grandfather didn't get, you know? So this is not about, you know, saving money. In fact, the the research shows that blacks actually save more than whites. Um, so that, that, it's not about individual decisions here. This is about systemic um, problems. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Are payday loans the same things as cash checking? Like, what is, when people say, are they synonymous? No. So, so cash checking. So if you don't have a bank account, right? So it's like 38 million Americans or more don't are underbanked or unbanked. And so um, way more blacks and, than whites are. So you don't have access to a bank account. This is because banks have left inner city neighborhoods and rural areas. So if you don't have a bank account, um, you go to a check casher to pay to cash your checks. Um, you then have to take that money and go and pay your bills, your water bill, your electricity bill, your phone bill. You go and you pay in cash. This is 10% of your income that goes to fees just to use your money. So this is just this tax on the poor. Payday loans are if you have a bank account, you have a job, you just have a gap in what you make and what you need in expenses in one month, right? So a lot of poor people have income volatility, meaning that they have unpredictable um, schedules at work, right? Or if they have these these um, costs that come up and they have no buffer of savings because they're just, you know, working at these low wage jobs, which not paying people enough to live. And so let's say you're, you know, single mom and usually, you know, it's single moms that end up um, becoming uh, the the large majority of the poor who have to rely on these payday loans. So you have a single mom, let's say you work at Walmart, you know, your schedule is erratic. One 
you know, month your kid gets sick or your kid needs, you know, school supplies or your car breaks down, you need $500. Your income just doesn't cover it. Your social circle doesn't have it. You don't want to get evicted from your home because that leads to a whole bunch of other problems. So you go to get a payday loan. You pay $500, you know, hoping that by the next month you can cover it. Now these loans, what they do, the, the price, the, the interest just spirals out of control, right? So every two weeks you're paying $50 to $100 to service the loan. By the time it's all is said and done, usually you know, you've had the loan out for a couple of months, you paid $2,500 for that $500 loan wow. and you're in a whole world of trouble that you didn't have before. Now you're dealing with you know, a court and uh, could be bankruptcy, um, lots of stress meanwhile and the health consequences of that chronic stress. And this is something that those of us who are middle class and wealthy and have a buffer of savings just don't understand the mental, physical, and financial toll that these payday lenders take on the, uh, people's lives. And and really, there are no other options. So, you know, if you're going to give financial education to that single mom, you would say, well, don't take out this loan. And and, and they, she would say, well, where do I get this $500? And you would say, go to friends and family, because that's how people end up paying these things off. And she, she would, you know, and have to find someone um, to pay for that. And a lot of people, if you grow, if you're poor, your social circle is also poor. Um, and so it's, it's not a possibility. Um, banks don't lend um, those small amounts. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a real, you can go to the black market and see, you know, maybe you have a, some loan shark in the neighborhood that will front you the money. And that's a whole other set of um, collection practices that those people engage in, like, you know, busted kneecaps and things like that. So, you know, you know this is a market that there's a demand for, and the payday lenders are the only ones meeting it. Now, are, are black banks the solution? Like when people talk about, you know, I've always been interested in uh, when people talk about black banks, like I'm all for it. I've been trying to figure out what makes a black bank different than a than like another bank. Uh, and, and is the solution that black people should be putting their money in black banks and communities? Or is that like just a proxy to get us somewhere else? Um, so, I mean, I, I think black, so I think black banks um, are institutions that do not exploit black communities and they do offer a lot of services that other banks don't offer. So I think black banks are um, great resources in a community. Are they the solution to the wealth gap? No. And I think this is important because ever since, you know, the dawn of the cusp of the civil war to today, policymakers, when black communities and activists, I mean, this goes back to Frederick Douglass, this goes to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all you know, W.E. Du Bois, when they have asked policymakers for real, meaningful reforms on the economic agenda, policymakers have pushed back with black banks. So Reconstruction is a good example. You know, Reconstruction is, you know, we were going to get, the uh, blacks were going to get 40 acres and a mule. This is the land that they had been working for hundreds of years. Um, the land grants was fought by the South, obviously, and they overthrew Reconstruction in a violent way through terrorism and violence. And Reconstruction fails. Johnson vetoes it. But instead, the freed slaves get a bank, a savings bank. So they get the Freedman Savings Bank. And so, oh, you know, we're not, we're not going to give you land, but you can get the savings account and save your way into land. What happens is that the savings account, you know, and, and, and freed slaves 
do save in the in the bank is millions of dollars you know billions in today's money comes into this bank from the free slaves and the white managers of the bank essentially take the money and speculate it on railroad bonds and lose half of the deposits and then in the civil rights era you know when after the civil rights acts are passed the voting rights act and black activists are start, starting to say both Martin Luther King and you know the the black power movement are saying we need economic justice, right? So either integration and reparations, and what does Nixon respond with, but black banks and black capitalism. And this is the, the history that I've covered. It's an important history because, and, and by the way, once Nixon says that, every president post-Nixon responds to the wealth gap through, you know, black business, black banks. And of course, now we don't call it that. We call it community development or community enterprise. Um, Donald Trump last week uh, in one of his least controversial acts, actions as president, you know, d- deemed October 24th, uh, whatever last week was, um, or two weeks ago, as Minority Enterprise Business Week. And every president since Nixon has done this. And this is just this, you know, policy band-aid thing that, you, you know, you bring a few um, minority executives and give them awards and, you know, sort of bolster these financial success stories and pretend like that's the appropriate response to the racial wealth gap. So I've uncovered this history and it's, 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 it's a cynical kind of ugly picture, but not to say that everyone engaged in it is, is doing it. I mean, there's a lot of community organizations that are doing very, very good work and black banks are doing very good work, but there are also policies that were rooted in a cynical response um, that was a decoy to other meaningful reform. And that's what I try to focus on in the book. So what do we do? Um, what do we do is we we bone up on our history. We we learn what happened. I mean, I'm so I'm a a bookworm and a you know a, a, a professor, right? So I, I say read, uh, figure out what happened and why it happened. So dig into this history and understand it, and and get political power. I mean, I think the the one of the the lessons of this history of the racial wealth gap is this idea that, um, you know, you. Policies create wealth, um, federal policies. Banks are not these private entities. They're very much public utilities. And so we need to get um, political power. We, as in a coalition of um, people who can force change, right? Not just black, but, you know, all of us. And, and, and understanding that what kind of political action and, and targeting this economic, um, these economic policies, right? Don't look away from things that seem too, you know, taxi or banky or, you know, econy, but like really just focus on those things. So as activists and as professors and as voters, we really need to be paying attention to um, the policies that always go under the radar. I mean, most people look up, you know, once there's a big crisis, but then most of the other time they look away. And I think we really need to... um, figure out what our policymakers are doing as it relates to banks, as it relates to taxes. Um, and what we, what we have currently is a uh, corrupt and regressive tax system. We've got a corrupt and regressive bank banking regulatory system. We have, you know, five or six big banks that control the market. Um, I've advocated a push for public banking. So uh, public option, um, I've talked about postal banks being used as a way to give, you know, small savers and small borrowers uh, access to banking, um, sort of trying to cut these payday lenders and check cashers. Can we talk about that? The post office used to be a bank, right? The post office was a bank from 1910 until 1966 and gave a lot of, you know, immigrants and black communities and just, you know, 
low-income individuals across the country a place to just have your money, um, which is huge, right? If you can have this, you know, five hundred dollars or six hundred dollars or a thousand dollars to save in a postal bank, which banks don't use, don't want your small savings. They will give you overdraft fees and all sorts of checking fees if you don't have enough money, if you're not rich. Um, so, you know, poor people don't have a place to save their money that is secure and safe. And so if you have that $500 or whatever, next time you have an emergency, you won't need that payday loan. So just giving people a place to park their money and save it is a huge boon that would, you know, cut some of these check cashers, especially out of the market, right? So then you get your checkbooks, you can get a debit card and not pay 10% of your income just to cash your check. So that that's immediately, um, you know, putting money back in the pockets of, you know, everyday sort of low-income Americans. Um, otherwise, we could talk about public banking in a bigger way, you know, talk about how how can we get loans, cutting out banks as a middleman, right? A lot of the credit comes from these federal government programs. Um, why do we need banks, you know, scooping up profits um, from that and really only serving the wealthy? We need, uh, you know... A, n- a way to get that credit into the pockets of low-income Americans, um, get them wealth-building wealth um, loans, not just subprime loans, which is how usually low-income communities are courted by the financial markets. And then as far as the wealth gap, I mean, look, we know how to create middle-class wealth in America, and it's through um, mortgage guarantees, it's through um, low-cost student loans, it's through all of these programs that we did during the New Deal in the true progressive era. But that time, the, the 1934 New Deal um, programs were built on white supremacy. In order for FDR to get his New Deal passed in the Senate, um, which was controlled by the Southern Bloc, he had to cut blacks out of it. And we need a new New Deal that doesn't do that, and in fact reverses those um, gains and and really focuses on black wealth. Um, I think that is historically justified um, to just reverse those programs and and just pump in money into those red line communities because we really or credit um, and and then there's a way to do it that it's not um, costly. You know, the New Deal was not costly. Everyone gained and the public coffers were actually filled with the creation of a new middle class. So it doesn't have to be. Um, you know, some some suck of public money. Now, when I one of the last things before we talk about the books that you've written, you know, when I talk to people, there are some people, especially white people, who feel like they would be losing in this equation. That it would be some redistribution of their quote their wealth that would that would be necessary to to bring everybody to a point where there was equity. What do you say to that? Um, I think it's not a zero sum, right? So we, that, that's what we, we, we need to understand here is that pockets of, pockets of poverty um, actually hinder all of our economic growth. I mean, there's been studies on this, right? The more the economic inequality there is, um, it's a drag on, on, uh, public, on the public at, in a, at the, uh, on the large scale. And so I think you know, bringing people up to a middle-class living standard actually does benefit everyone just economically, right? Getting, you know, our failing schools and other other things that are, you know, sort of this drain on public resources, getting more home ownership. I mean, it doesn't have to be home ownership, but some sort of capital ownership actually boosts everyone's um, uh, bottom line. But I also think, um, you know, um, I'm okay with benefits going um, just to people who are not me. <laughs> and we have to be, as a society, 
okay with that because if you look at this history, and this is what I've tried to untangle in the book, is for from the beginning of this country and until today, um, economic benefits have gone to white communities, and this is what privilege looks like in the white privilege looks like in the economic sense, right? We we have purposefully, um, you know, redistributed wealth to whites or upwards. Um, We have been doing wealth redistribution. We have been doing social engineering, but it hasn't been the way that people think it is. It's been to white communities through these um, New Deal era programs. Um, And you could read about it in the book, but but the way we talk about it tends to be this, this backwards way of, oh, it's the welfare recipients that are taking public money. Welfare is just a drop in the bucket compared to all of the other subsidies that go to um, the wealthy and and the middle class. Um, so, look, I mean, I'm, I think, yeah, and this is where I say the remedy is to just know more, because the less you know, um, the the more likely you are to blame the wrong people for the wrong things. And can you talk about the books that you've written, and where can people find more information about you or and about those books? Um, yeah, so I have written the How, How the Other Half Banks, but the one that I just wrote is The Color of Money. And I, I think if you're going to pick one, pick The Color of Money, because I think that's where I talk about the history of the racial wealth gap and and try to really connect how um, how the wealth gap is created and the, the problems that that has uh, sort of, you know, created in, in tandem with the wealth gap and also how um, politics have, have played into that. And it's, it's a story um, that goes from the Civil War until today. And it really, I try to connect a lot of different strands of, of thought in this area and, and paint a full um, picture of what's happened and, and what we need to do to um, remedy that. And you can find me on Twitter, but, you know, don't come find me in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and where can people find you on Twitter? Um, I'm at, at Marissa Baradaran. It's a hard name, but M-E-H-R-S-A-B-A-R-A-D-A-R-A-N. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being able to talk to us and Pate the People. We consider you a friend of the pod, and we'll have you back soon. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And now my conversation with David Kamen, former special assistant to President Obama for economic policy. David Kamen, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Pod Save the People today. My pleasure. Thank you. It's great to be back. Okay, so can you tell us what is happening with this tax proposal from the Republicans? Sure. So right now there are two tax proposals from the Republicans, one in the House and one in the Senate. They have introduced both in just the last uh, couple of weeks, giving people only days to read the legislation before putting it, trying to put it through committee. They are rushing the bills, uh, trying to get them done and even on the president's desk for signature by December 
So we're right now in crunch time, and the bills are long, they are complicated, they disproportionately benefit some of the richest Americans and have a lot of complicated provisions, and it's between now and December which may decide whether these things become law or not. And what are the differences between the two plans? Or should we be equally worried about both of them, or is there one that we should be more worried about, or either of them good? The, the the two plans which they which they are going to end up having to reconcile are have the same basic frame to them. Uh, they are different in some important respects, but they do have the same basic frame to them, which is they have very large rate cuts for uh, business income and especially the business income of some of the largest corporations and businesses. So. Both of them feature a large reduction in the corporate tax rate from the current rate of 35% to 20%. Both of them feature a new special lower rate for other kinds of businesses, uh, businesses that work what are often called through pass-throughs, where the business income gets taxed on someone's individual tax return. And there, there's an especially large loophole for in the House version of the tax bill, which provide very large benefits to people at the top of the income distribution, but both feature a um, loophole for uh, those kinds of businesses. Now, they also have some uh, modest tax cuts for low and middle income families. Some of those families might even see immediate tax increases starting in 2018, but for families, especially with just taking a standard deduction who aren't itemizing and so on, they do give some small tax cuts, but those tax cuts tend to dissipate with time. And even for some of their families, including their big example family, would turn into a tax increase, for instance, under the House plan. So bottom line, some differences, a lot of similarities. Big similarity is that these are tax cut that these are tax cuts disproportionately focused on big corporations, and which tend to disproportionately benefit the top of the income distribution. And can you just explain the uh, the corporate tax? Like, what is a why does a corporate tax matter? Like, what does it mean that it's being cut this way? Like, why should people care about that? Like, I don't think I've ever heard about corporate taxes until this moment. <laughs> Corporate taxes are important because uh, some of the largest businesses in America uh, pay tax to the government that way. So we raise hundreds of billions of dollars right now through the corporate tax. It's not the largest source of revenue for the government, but it is an important source of revenue. And it's a source of revenue that most economists think really ends up being paid by uh, the owners of the companies. And the owners of the companies tend to be people with money to own the companies tend to be disproportionately um, some of the highest income Americans. So it's important because it raises money. It's important because it's a source of revenue from some of the highest income Americans. And finally, it's also important because the corporate tax provides a backstop to the regular income tax that we have. And if you get rid of it, if you cut it too much, it can allow a way for high income Americans to potentially shove money into corporations to try to avoid taxation. 
so it's important for a range of reasons. Um, and look, there are some parts of the corporate system which do probably deserve reform. We don't tax in some of the best ways, especially when it comes to the internet, the ways that our multinational businesses get taxed. But bottom line, this is a progressive revenue source, and they're going to be cutting it a lot in both bills. It's part of the reason why both bills end up disproportionately benefiting some of the richest Americans. We talked before, and one of the things you said is that the cuts are going to bring down the revenue so dramatically, but not change anything with the spending, and that this will allow the Republicans in a couple of years to just cut yeah. programs because they'll be like, there's just not enough money because they've actually decreased the revenue through these massive tax cuts. Do you still think that's the case, that that's their plan? Yes, and that is, I think that is their plan. I think they're pretty explicit that that is their plan. Um, so these tax cuts in uh, in uh, both versions of them uh, reduce revenues by $1.5 trillion over the next decade. Now, they will claim that those tax cuts mean that everyone wins. Now, first off, it's important to recognize that everyone doesn't win, even in what is written into the very legislation. So, for instance, in 2027, under the plan that the House put forward, 96 million Americans making less than $200,000 a year would, by that point, see no tax cut or a tax increase. Um, And that's even as those making over a million dollars would see a tax cut averaging about uh, $100,000 per household. So, you know, even then, so even written into the plans are either no tax cuts or tax increases on many middle income families. Now, looking out ahead, it's important to recognize that that's even as that plan adds really significantly to the deficit. And step two of the strategy is to then say, with a $1.5 trillion added to the deficit, it will be even more urgent to reduce the deficit by cutting programs like Medicare, like Medicaid, perhaps even Social Security. And then in that way, Financing those deficits, financing the tax cuts by a reduction in some of the programs that are key to low and middle income Americans and also investments that help grow the economy. And it's in their own budget. So their own budgets that they voted on have those very kinds of cuts outlined in them. Now, they've separated it so that they voted on their budget that, that have those cuts in them, but then they set up the process so that they did the tax cuts first and separated from the spending cuts. This is a, this, they've sort of learned from what happened with health care reform, but in that one of the things that tripped them up was that they tried to put together the tax cuts that they wanted and the spending cuts that were going to finance it and kick people off health care. In this case, they're trying to do tax cuts only, and then later on would return and say, look, we have these big new deficits that are even larger than, we, than they were before, and we've got to cut back key programs. So I do think that's almost explicitly the strategy of the Republican Party right now. Like, is there not another way they could inflict sort of their agenda? Like, why taxes the site that they're fighting over? So they're fighting over taxes because uh, for high-income Americans and corporations, this is a a significant way that they, you know, they pay money into the government and uh, that that we finance some of our key transfer programs that Republicans, that often the Republicans don't like and also key investments that they often oppose. And so I think it's, you know, probably a, a few things there. 
And, uh, you know, and as I said, it starts off with the fact that we, you know, we do have a progressive federal tax system. Uh, the system at the state level is less so, but for the federal government, high-income Americans and corporations do contribute a significant amount of money, even as they make even, you know, a large share of income in the country. And I think they'd like to reduce that. And they'd also like to reduce what the government does, um, including some of the basic programs that help low and middle income Americans. And again, some of the investments we make. And so it's a twofer. If you manage to cut back uh, government revenues, um, including the, and especially the, the, the amounts that corporations and high income Americans are paying, and also uh, then later able to ramp back some of the programs they dislike, I think that's why they're so focused. It's pretty central to what they believe. And look, I think some of them honestly believe that somehow, you know, taxes really slow down the economy and these programs and that provide safety nets do as well. Others may be answerable to their donors. In any case, uh, this for them is pretty central to their economic agenda. Now, what are some of the other lesser known provisions of their proposals? I, the corporate tax plan, the corporate tax cut get, gets a lot of play. I thought I saw something about taking away um, money for teachers buying supplies or something about uh, loans yeah. for school. Do you know anything about those parts? I've, I've, I do. Um, so, uh, especially in, in the in the house plan, um, but both feature some pro, uh, things that are like this. But in the house plan, especially, um, you see this really stark line uh, drawn between owners of firms who are given all kinds of tax preferences, uh, and which a lot of them are retained, and employees um, who get things taken away from them. So, for instance, uh, in the House plan, they um, get rid of a lot of deductions that employees can take that are actually real cost to them of being an employee. That includes the $250 above the line write-off that teachers can take for uh, supplies that they buy for their classrooms. But it also includes a bunch of other employee expenditures that are right now actually probably too limited. For instance, we right now allow a limited deduction for um, the uh, union, um, union dues that workers pay. Those fee, those dues should probably be fully deductible, just like when a business pays its lawyers to negotiate with uh, union representatives, they get to take a full write-off. But right now, union dues are partially deductible by the employees who pay them. The House would completely get rid of that deduction. So I think you see this really sort of stark separation where owners can continue to write off those kinds of expenditures and employees are treated really differently. And uh, things like union dues become entirely non-deductible under the House plan, even as businesses both get a rate cut and uh, could continue writing off when they pay their lawyers to represent them in those kinds of negotiations. And is there any change to the earned income tax credit? I know before you talked about the earned income tax credit being um, the single biggest cash assistance that we give to low income people in the country. Uh, I think I said that correctly. Is there any change to that? So uh, one one important change they make uh, that would be something that has an effect that builds over time is they slow down the annual 
uh, inflation adjustment that's supposed to adjust for co- for the increased cost of living each year, and that's something that has a you know it, it's just it's a it's a small a change each year, but it's one that builds over time, and so um, you of course have to look at it in the full context of the bill, but especially on the House side, there was um, basically nothing for low income families. On the Senate side, there's some little things for, for low-income families, but a change like that can have increasing effects over time so that once you get out a few years, you, be, you, can, can, you can begin to see uh, tax increases uh, on those families that can become somewhat significant as this program that you know, previously would have adjusted for cost of living a bit faster ends up going more slowly. And so it's just reflecting the fact, especially with the House bill, there was nothing done basically for uh, the lowest income families, even as they seem to slow down the inflation adjustment for what is one of the most important support programs for uh, the lowest income families. What are the questions that we should be asking as this unfolds? So, you know, I think it's really important to ask what this bill is going to do to help low-income and middle-income working families in this country. And I think it's important for people to make sure that politicians are held to account, that they aren't allowed to get away with funny math and magic thinking, saying that cutting taxes dramatically in corporations and deficit financing that will be what helps middle-class families because the benefits will somehow trickle down as you know, corporations will do, you know, invest in ways that help families. That's not what the economic evidence suggests. Yes, there are ways to, re- to reform corporate taxes that could potentially do some good, but not when it's a dramatic cut that is deficit fan- financed and likely to actually go the wrong direction, reduce economic growth. So I think it's asking, what is this going to do for families? How is it going to do that? And making sure that the Republicans cannot get away with essentially a bait and switch, where they offer some relatively modest tax cuts for some working families and eventually phase that down relative to much larger tax cuts for corporations and high income Americans that will eventually lead to programs being cut that are more, that are really important for low income and middle income families. So, really, as I said, I think it's holding them to account and making sure that the rhetoric they're saying, because they're going to say that this helps middle-income families. They're going to say middle-class families come away as winners. And it's making sure that that rhetoric is actually backed up with reality. And right now, under both plans, it's not. Boom. Well, David, thanks so much for joining uh, today. How can people find you? Sure. Uh, So they can find me on Twitter uh, at David C. Kamen, K-A-M-I-N. Uh, and I'm also uh, posting a good amount to Medium, and I try to also get that out through Twitter as well. And where can they find you on Medium? You're David Kamen? Yes, I am. Well, thank you so much, David. I appreciate it. We can't wait to have you back to give us another update on what's happening with taxes. All right. Thanks so much, DeRay. Real pleasure to join you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod of the People. Please tell a friend. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, and I'll see you next week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. 
Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> Look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. 